over the break uh, in December, Kevin and I had traveled to Florida for a little bit and we were in the airport and uh, I'm always carrying a book, even though I barely read it. Um, and then Kevin picked up your book and Kevin had read the entire book in a week. Welcome, welcome to the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. This is the podcast where we dissect and analyze the amazingly powerful art of storytelling and learn how to harness storytelling to supercharge our everyday lives. I'm Gaurav. And I'm Kevin. You know, Gaurav, we start off every one of our episodes saying our names, but you know, come to think of it, everyone has a story behind how they got their names. I feel like it's something interesting to talk about. So Gaurav, what does your name mean? Uh, so my name is Gaurav and it uh, translates to pride in Hindi. And what's cool about my name is it's traditionally spelled G-A-U-R-A-V. And my parents changed it because I was born in Canada to G-O-R-A-V. So it's a little bit easier to spell. And there are other people who use this spelling, but it's always made it a little bit more unique. And it's I've always loved it. And my middle name is actually Nicholas because my parents wanted me to have the choice uh, between a more Eastern and Western name. And... It's, it was a really powerful choice. And when I was moving to the States uh, from Canada, I was thinking about it too. Uh, but, you know, I've loved my name. I think it makes me a little bit unique. I do sometimes, you know, get a little anxiety when you're introducing myself to someone because sometimes I mumble, sometimes I don't pronounce it correctly. But it's always that weird exchange where I'm like, it's fine. And they're like, no, I want to get it right. I'm like, it's fine. <laughs> the one thing though, is I do not use my first name at coffee shops anymore. I always use Nicholas because um, I do not want to have that conversation about how to spell it and they always get it wrong. And <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, people have different perceptions on this and uh, I think people are getting better and pronouncing someone's name and uh, making sure you're honoring the way they choose to present is so important. And it's a very personal thing too. For me, I've never really striven to correct people or make sure everyone's pronouncing exactly right. For me, it's about as long as you're putting in an honest effort. Mm-hmm. So Kev, um, Kevin's not even your birth name. Yes, like you said. Um, I'm only going by Kevin uh, in this country or, or when I speak this language. My original or my legal uh, Chinese first name is Kai Yuan. Kai means to open, to begin. Uh, and Yuan uh, means the beginning of an era or simply a, the beginning of a year and I got this name because fun fact I was born on New Year's Eve so that's how I got my name I was born kind of at the beginning of another year another era um, and yeah this is a whole gigantic debate among a lot of Chinese people what name should you go by when you're in a different country or different environment some people feel like you know you shouldn't mask your identity with uh, a different nickname or code name whereas on the other hand some people think you know i just don't want to get my name butchered because uh, mandarin is different from a lot of different language and i'm getting into my linguistic nerdy you know side a bit but you have to pronounce it in a certain tone uh, which uh, it's a feature that many languages simply don't have. But without digging too deep into this rabbit hole, 
You can call me Kevin. There are great stories associated with everyone's names. We are talking so much about our name today, partly because of the amazing guest we have this week.、Uh, we are talking with Kirtana Ramisetti. She used to work as an entertainment reporter for Newsday and the New York Daily News, but more recently she has come out with this amazing book called Dava Shastri's Last Day, in which、uh, the names of characters. Play a pretty important role, but before I get into that, Graf, would you care to introduce to us what the book is about? So, Kevin Devashasi's last day is an amazing story about a billionaire seventy-year-old Indian immigrant, a second-generation Indian immigrant, who is dying. She knows she's dying. She knows she's dying soon, and so she's decided to tell the world that she died. A day before she was set to、uh, essentially medically take her own life with a doctor, and the reason she did this was、um, was so that she could see the world's reaction. She can read what、uh, people are writing about and saying about her because she was a、uh, billionaire. She was a public figure, and there will be people who write about her. So she wanted to experience that, but. Uh, what she didn't expect was two of her biggest secrets to come out, and so what she had done was she summoned her whole family to this kind of rich、uh, island that she owned, and told them she was dying, and told them that she announced the world a、uh, news to the world. So in this story, we see Dava struggle with her secrets coming out, her family discovering these secrets, and struggle with what is going to be remembered. It's a fascinating story of family. And legacy, and the immigrant experience, and all these essential truths that affect us, and the idea of what will the world say about me when I die. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Today, we're so glad to be joined by none other than Kirtana Ramisetti, who is the author、uh, of Dava Shastri's Last Day. We'll get into this very、uh, amazing book. You know, I, I would tell you her story. I'm sure she has an amazing one, but I should really leave you up to herself to tell her own story. So to start us off, Kirtana,、mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? Sure. So I'm originally from Southern California.、Uh, I grew up in Orange County. I attended UCLA. In、um, I graduated in 2000, and then I've always had a lifelong interest in books and writing and reading. And I also had an interest in entertainment and pop culture. So、uh, those were my two longtime interests. I definitely got to tap into that a little bit at UCLA, where I was a communications major. And then、um, I decided to get my MFA in creative writing from Emerson College, and that became my first experience with actually studying creative writing.、Um, from there, I learned a lot of things related to not just fiction writing, but also different forms of writing: playwriting, travel writing, poetry writing. Which I think really expanded me as a writer and helped me kind of start my path towards having a career in media and journalism. Where, for the past, I don't know, fifteen years or so, I've had the opportunity to actually write a lot about what interests me, which is entertainment and pop culture, music, film, books, etc. And so,、um, while I was an entertainment reporter first at Newsday and later at the New York Daily News,、um, one of the tasks we have as entertainment reporters is to cover. Um, the deaths of celebrities, 
And so as part of that coverage, we had to be attuned to the real-time social media reaction anytime a notable figure passed away. And so each time I saw that reaction and, you know, the people who respond with shock and grief and also posted fond memories of this person and just that kind of the communal commiseration that happens in social media anytime this news kind of breaks. I always have this thought in my head, which is do other notable people see how, let's see this reaction and wonder what will be said about them when they pass away. And it was just kind of this curious curiosity I always had in the back of my mind that it never quite went away. And then a couple of years ago, I decided to move away from journalism because I got basically burned out. Um, it can be a very hard, challenging career. <laughs> so while I was trying to figure out my next move, um, and I went, I went into freelance, but I thought, well, you know what, let me try writing this novel. It's been my third time in about 20 years trying to write a novel. So I thought I would take this premise that kind of stayed with me while I that developed while I was an entertainment reporter and kind of that curiosity about that premise and that idea that stayed with me and kind of explore it in novel form, which is the idea that what if somebody was so obsessed with how the world perceives them that they actually leak news of their death early just so they could read about what, what their legacy is and what, uh, what people remember them for. And that was kind of the birth of my debut novel. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, as I mentioned, we loved it. Um, we both have our copies here. And as you can probably see, I've, I've, I've read it. Um, it's just full of sticky notes and full of comments and full of just like, I was obsessed with this book. Um, and it's funny because I'm, I'm not a big reader, as I mentioned. Um, I really don't read fiction. Um, very rarely, and it's usually a school-related reason in the past, but I've been telling Kevin I've wanted to get more into fiction, so uh, when he kind of said you should read this book, I was like, wow, and uh, so much in this I related to as someone also who, you know, I was born and raised in Canada. Um, I am um, Indian descent, but I've always had that, that kind of divide that you talk about in this book, where it's like, I'm not from India, I don't speak the language, um, and then when interacting with people, who do and who are more deep in the culture, deep in the religion, there can be a little bit of that, you know, outside of feeling that I think Dava in this book really talked about feeling. And so this is one of the many ways I really related to this book. And it's just, it was so fascinating. So there's so many things we want to get into. And I think um, one thing I'm going to remind y'all of and the audience of many times is I know these aren't real people, but I'm going to talk about them as if they are. <laughs> Definitely really pretty lively characters that, that uh, Grover and I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, but, you know, I do also want to quickly get into your, you know, career as an entertainment journalist. I imagine as you write about the deaths of celebrities, you also have to uh, include a kind of a short summary of their lives. So that is a, a pretty unique type of storytelling there. So could you help us? Detail a little bit how you apply storytelling in that field as a writer, entertainment, news, and what constitutes uh, a good entertainment story. Well, that's actually a really good question, and one I haven't thought about in quite some time because I haven't been in, like in the grind of trying to create. You know, at, my, mm -hmm. at the time when I was working at uh, um, New York Daily News, for example, I was writing anything between four to six stories per day, so it was all kind of instinct and adrenaline because you just have to kind of get the story out and move on to the next one. I was thinking about this question about what makes a good storytelling in, in, a, in a news article, and in this case, an entertainment news article. And it's all about letting the reader know why is this story important? Why is this a story you see the headline and you should click on it? 
And I was thinking about, you know, a headline is kind of similar to a title, right? You saw my book's title and you found it intriguing. That's the same thing we'd have to do in terms of writing a headline. And even if you never heard about the celebrity per se, as for example, if we're talking about an obituary, you try to distill the essence of that person in a headline or what makes them notable or what makes them a person want to click on this person's, uh, click on the story and make them want to learn more. So it's very much about distilling what makes this person important, what their individual legacy was, and then also what, you know, the impact that they had on maybe their community, the industry, and just the world around them. So it really depends. Sometimes we'll write a story about a celebrity and they were not even, they're not the most famous person, but they did some one or two notable things and you definitely kind of bring that to the forefront. And then during my time as a reporter, uh, we had to cover, for example, the death of Robin Williams. And that's a celebrity death that always, I always remember because sometimes when a per, like a news story in general might have the shelf life of let's say 24 hours and then people kind of move on to the next thing. But because Robin Williams was such an icon and his death came out such a shock and the nature of his death was such a shock, it was a story that had a ripple, ripple effects for weeks that as we reported on different angles of the story from the legacy, his legacy that he left behind, um, the nature of his passing, which was very tragic, and what his death meant to so many people in so many industries from comedy to film to general pop culture. So these are the kind of things you have to think about in terms of when you're reporting on a story, especially of a story that's on an ongoing nature, you kind of have to be responsive to, well, why are people interested in this person? And what can we do to make sure that we share the latest information or the most interesting information as it comes out? You also happen to be our very first guest who is a novelist or someone who writes literature of a fictional nature. And fiction is a very unique form of storytelling. And it is definitely one of the most long lasting forms of storytelling we have, you know, dating all the way back to the very ancient of times. Um, and it's so interesting because, you know, these stories are mostly not real, not uh, stuff that's happened. So uh, to you, uh, and this calls on your creative writing roots a little bit, why do you think we are constantly so drawn towards fictional stories? I think it's because, I mean, I think back to, you know, my very early days as a reader and books can transport you into other worlds and other perspectives. So often we're kind of in our day-to-day -day lived experience and we only see things from our point of view. And I think fiction is a way of kind of challenging our own ideas of what life can be like or should be like, and also kind of takes us away. It, for me, it kind of sometimes, especially when I was younger, I considered it a form of traveling. <laughs> you know, when you're younger, you're not very much in control of your destiny, you kind of do what you're supposed to do. But with books, I feel like I can explore the entire the outside world in a variety of ways in terms of character, in terms of location, in terms of the kind of storytelling I was reading. Um, and I found that very valuable. And I always find it very valuable to this day that um, fiction is a way that we can either though, even though it's made up, you can also so often get down to essential truths in fiction and storytelling. And you can honestly sometimes see yourself in a new eyes by seeing how a character lives his or her life or the choices they make. So I think it's a great way of kind of getting outside of our own heads and our own day-to-day -day experiences and kind of being introduced to new ideas, new perspectives, new ways of being, new cultures. Um, and it's just, you know, it's just so important. That's such an important kind of ideal. 
And it's something we talked about with one of our guests in season one about this, these relationships you build with fictional characters, these kind of parasocial relationships where, um, where you are building resiliency through these characters without having to experience it yourself, you're understanding the emotions and connecting with them. I wanted to add, also, I think fiction is so important because it teaches us empathy. It's so easy kind of to stay in your narrow point of view and your narrow perspective. Mm-hmm. And when you see other characters and how they, t- so often, you know, novels, fiction, you're dealing with conflicts and how do characters navigate conflict and how whether it's internal conflict or external conflicts. And just seeing a character kind of endure whatever they have to do kind of provides a greater empathy because it might bring you a perspective on something like if you were in similar shoes, how would you approach that? Especially in our day and age where I think we're so much locked into our bubbles about this is what I think and I don't want to hear another perspective. It's it's real important to have the kind of empathetic thinking that I think fiction and storytelling can provide. Do you see that parallelism between, you know, fictions and kind of the the stories of the rich and famous in that regard, because to the vast majority of the population, the life of a celebrity or, you know, a singer or actor or performer is kind of so far removed from our day-to-day lives that it almost is fictional. Do you see, you know, why do you think people are fascinated by the stories of Richard Famous, do you see that parallelism or do you think there are other reasons on top of that? I think it's kind of twofold. One, it's definitely, I mean, it lets us in into a kind of world and a lifestyle that we will never have access to. And so there's always going to be a curiosity about how people live in terms of the luxury and the privilege that they have. And um, it's always fun to see. Right now, for example, I'm watching The Gilded Age. It's a lot of wealthy people, opulent clothing, luxurious homes. And when am I I ever going to see something like this in my daily life? I'm not. So I love having that window, you know, into that kind of, into that period and to what the fashions were like and decor and the architecture, et cetera. But also, and I think the other thing is, I think there's kind of a sense that we kind of are happy to watch the wealthy, you know, in fictional storytelling, because we learned that, you know, even though with all their wealth, and all their luxury, they're not necessarily very happy. <laughs> you know, none of that makes them happy. If anything, it can you know expand their misery or the fact you know their own inner conflict or dislike of themselves. And that can somehow you know you think of Succession, people love that show even though they hate everybody on it. And part of it's kind of fun. They're very smart characters and they're very kind of lethal to one another. But it's kind of to see, you know, no matter where they're traveling on a private jet or if they're in Scotland or wherever they are they are the most miserable people there and they don't even seem to be enjoying it. So it just kind of makes you think like, okay, I love watching this, but I can see that if I was there, it might not necessarily be any happier than I am now. There's so much to unpack there and that that idea of the rich and famous being in kind of this, their own little bubble. And uh, we see this through this fascination through, you know, just the, the money that people spend for pictures or for all these magazines that take them or, uh, the television was like session. It's such an interesting world. And you, you know, you mentioned kind of the Gilded Age and it made me think back to the book as well. The book takes place in 2044 for the most part and then goes back in time. But it's uh, often when you see books go in the future like that, it's more for like science fiction reasons to like tell us about the future. But the book's pretty isolated in one kind of low tech environment. So why was it important that that took place in 2044? <laughs> it was a purely indulgent decision on my part. So. Um, before I wrote Dava, I had written two previous novels that hadn't worked out. So when it came time to write this novel, I'm like, well, let me write about 
let me really go for it and try to write about everything I'm interested in. So it's family, legacy, celebrity, celebrity gossip, and music. Music is a very big deal to me. And so at the time I was writing it, I really didn't think anyone was going to read it, right? I'm just kind of writing it for myself. And I really wanted to explore how music can really shape a character's life through, you know, throughout her entire life and in many different ways. And so I thought, if I'm going to write about music, let me write about the music that shaped me and inspired me. And that's why I said in 2044, because once I figured out that my main character was going to be a matriarch and she was going to have children, and she was going to have grandchildren, but I also wanted her to have my musical references. The way I could accomplish that was by setting the book 20 years in the future. So I did. And, um, I, it made me, you know, it made me a very happy writer to be able to kind of talk about music in the way it shaped me through the character of Dada. And I was so lucky because I knew there was an unusual choice to make. It's not a normal choice to make. There's no reason the novel really needs to be set in 2044, except I wanted Dada's life, like her 20s and 30s, to kind of take place when, you know, our current, you know, our current era. But it made for a really memorable writing experience for me. I really consider this book to probably be the, one of the great creative experiences in my life in terms of the joy it gave me. And one of the reasons was, is that I decided to just be completely indulgent and set the novel <laughs> 20 years in the future so I could write about the music that I wanted to write about. Another very important element in the book that I related a lot to as well is the meaning of names of a lot of these characters, you really made sure to explain, you know, the meanings of Davas as well as every one of her children's names. Why did you do that? Why is it so important that we know what their names mean? I think it was something that came very organically out of the storytelling. One of the first things I decided about my main character, Dava, is that her mate name would be misspelled. And partly that's because my name was also misspelled on my birth certificate. So that was what inspired it. But unlike Dava, I did not embrace the misspelling. I decided that my character would. And her inspiration would be Oprah, because I love that story that Oprah, her name was misspelled on her birth certificate. And she embraced it. And now she's the only Oprah in the world. And that name is a signifier that means so much, has so much significance. And I feel like Dava would be kind of person who always very had a very, not the high opinion of herself, but she always knew she wanted to do very important things. And a part of that would be having a very memorable name that kind of was her brand, so to speak. So her name was deeply meaningful to her. So if her name was going to be so important to her, then that means her children's names were going to be even perhaps even more important than her own. And she would put a lot of thought into each of her children's names. And so originally, I was only going to really discuss in the novel, the origin of Kali's name, Arby's name, and Rev's name. And then I'm like, well, if I'm doing those three names, well, I have to do Sita too. Like, I can't leave her out. Her name is also important. So that's just became a natural part of the storytelling and also became a very important thing for each of her individual children to understand better the relationship to their mother and what her, kind of her life story through the way she chose each of their names. And I found it become a very compelling part of Dada's story and how her children get to understand her better and understand she truly does love them in a way she might not have always communicated well about her life. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I know that this book's been compared to Secession a bunch, and we, we um, I think it's just an easy comparison because a lot of people have seen it. Um, it's interesting because I think I was listening to an interview Brian Cox, who plays the father in Secession, was doing about the show. And he said, one of the first things the writers told me was that he loves his kids. Right? And that was very important to the character. And it was just showing in that unique way. Um, 
And I think that's similar with Dara, where she does truly love her kids. Unless I'm totally wrong, and I don't think I am. Um, but she does truly love her kids. Um, and it's just, it's a very complex relationship, as all of our relationships are with our parents. And I thought that was just such an interesting story. And it brings up that importance of legacy and how naming her children was another part of her giving them a legacy. Why is this legacy story so important to Dava and so important to the book as a whole? And why is it compelling to us as humans? That's an excellent question. And I think for me, it started out with just kind of, kind of thinking through the premise of the novel. When I first decided, okay, I'm going to have a main character who's going to leak news of her death early so she can read her obituaries. The first question I have to ask myself is why? Why would she do this? Why is this so important to her? And one of the first things I thought of as well, it would have been very easy to make her a celebrity because I could, you know, understandably, I can imagine an actress or a pop star or some kind maybe would do this. But I wanted to kind of not kind of take it completely down the celebrity route. I thought it'd be more interesting if my character does this because she's entirely self-made. And that way, you know, she didn't marry into wealth. She, she, she doesn't come from wealth. Everything that she built up for herself, she did on her own. And so if that's the case, then her legacy would be really important to her and not just her personal legacy, but the fact that her name could live on through the work of future generations. And that is when I kind of found Dava as a character. It's not just about like, I want to hear, like I want to read really great things about myself. It was more about, she just wants to make sure that all her life's work is recognized and it seems and feels that it has a place in the world that actually did do good, as much good as she thinks it does. And beyond that, it'll make sure that the work will continue and people will understand what the Dava Shastri name means. Um, so all came out of that. Um, one thing I have to say, what was interesting for me, a lesson I learned as I was writing this novel, um, I used to think the word legacy belonged to the notable, the famous, because those are the people's lives that we learn about. And then as I wrote this novel, I realized, you know, legacy is a word that belongs to all of us. You know, we might not be famous or well known, but we all kind of have an impact on the people in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. And legacy is just important for us to think about as it is for a person who, you know, is much more well known in different kinds of spheres. So that's, I think, why it's so important is that we all, one of the things I, I learned while writing Dava's character it's really interesting to write a character who's seven years old and has had seen her life evolve and change in many different ways, in ways that she didn't necessarily expect um, to happen as well. But when you do that, you kind of see the, the grand sweep of your life and you can see how much that can impact people for good or for bad. So maybe we should really think about the choices we make because we are, we are so much more impactful on other people than we realize. And so that's what I learned a lot about the concept of legacy, just in terms of writing and exploring Dava's character. Yeah, you know, because I think what's really interesting about this book and this idea of legacy that I think we all kind of grapple with, what what's the impact we're having? What are we going to leave behind? And it's such an essential story. And what we talk about a lot with storytellers and whether it's a novel, whether it's data storytelling, whether it's giving a presentation to a bunch of salespeople, all storytelling is about truth. It's about finding those essential truths that resonate with a person. And I think we all grapple with this idea of legacy. And what I find really interesting about the book is there's this kind of idea of familiar internal legacy, like what's my legacy within the family? And we see this through her conversations with her grandchildren and these kind of interactions she has with them. And then also that public legacy. Because I think in the first year, when you think of legacy, especially her, 
her idea was, okay, how is the public going to remember me? How's the future going to remember me? I'm someone, I'm a public figure. But the more impactful story, the one that kind of connects with people more, I would say, is the internal legacy. Like you said, is that idea of, well, what is my relationship with my grandchildren? What are they going to remember me? And I really love how this book kind of talks about both types and kind of finding that importance between both because they both do serve a role. Ultimately, that's one of the things I want to explore. Like, I think, you know, I definitely brought my entertainment reporting background to this novel in terms of how her legacy would be perceived and how it would be altered once her two big secrets come out about her. And so she's no longer seeing the story she, she was hoping to see. But what was much more interesting for me to explore ultimately was the fact that she has to really grapple with her relationships within her family and the legacy, the personal legacy she has with every single member of her family. And she had to really reckon with the fact that as much as she wants them to be a certain way and carry on her legacy a certain way, she has instilled in them the values that she wants them to carry on after she's gone. And so she has to kind of do the work and kind of reckon with the fact that her relationships she wanted to build with them haven't always been strong enough for them to like want to comply with her wishes, <laughs> so to speak. But it was really, I, writing that scene with the grandchildren was one of my favorite scenes in the novel, just because I think you really get to see Daba really kind of being vulnerable in a way she doesn't really let herself be vulnerable. And so, yeah, it was really, really fun and interesting to explore private versus public legacies. You know, I related so much to this story. I'm an Indian Canadian. I I was born, my parents were all born in the West. Uh, I think that makes me second generation Canadian. So um, there's this interesting kind of paradigm in this sense where uh, legacy for immigrants is so important because, you know, my grandfather, he immigrated this country, started a company, and now my all my adult family works at this company, right? So a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of like, there's a lot of like connection points with this book. And it's, it's, it's so interesting from that kind of, I would say, at least in my story, right, this immigrant experience where it's like how important it is, how hard, you know, our grandparents worked to get to this country, to make a life, to leave us better than we were, how hard our parents work. And kind of carrying that uh, story, I think, is really emphasizes that importance for legacy as immigrants. So I would love to talk about the self-Asian representation in this book is so important. How important was representing South Asians in this very accurate, very relatable way to you? And how did you go about that? That was a long question. <laughs> uh, no, I get your point completely because one of the first things, once I came up with the idea for this novel and I decided to commit to writing it, I definitely never crossed my mind, crossed my mind that the character was always going to be an Indian American woman. It just was. And one of the reasons for that, besides the fact that I'm also an Indian American woman, is that when you think of a premise of a novel like mine, you probably think, okay, probably a white man would be at the center of this story. You're not thinking a seven-year-old Indian American woman at the center of the story, because this kind of stories about South Asians and Indians and Indian Americans, we're generally not at the center of these kinds of stories. And so it was really fun for me just to be like, nope, this character's Indian, she's Indian American. And something that you touched on earlier is the fact that like you, you know, my parents moved here um, and me and my, my brother and sister were born here. Um, my parents moved here from India in the 70s. And um, it was really interesting to explore the fact that, yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know my native tongue. Um, I'm not super religious, but I do carry the values of my parents and they're deeply important to me. And the thing you were talking about being children of immigrant parents, like we always want our parents to be proud of us because they worked mm -hmm. so hard to bring us here. 
And no matter what our individual differences might be, at the end of the day, we just want to make them proud. And so that's the pressure that Daba feels, even though she might not always feel the most connected with her culture. I purposely made her an only child who has no connection to her relatives in India and grows up in a largely white town because I really wanted her to have this isolation and kind of throughout her life kind of not always knowing her connection to her culture, except that she feels very connected to it through her relationship with her parents and um, how much they were invested in her, her, her success and you know everything that she was doing as a, a child and then as an adult, if that makes sense. That makes so much sense. And, you know, I think this idea of like culture for your connection for immigrants if, to your parents is, is so important. Like, like we talked about, I don't speak Hindi. Um, I took it for a year at UCLA because there was a language requirement that made my grandparents happy. So <laughs> I took it for a year, but I don't speak Hindi, but I am, um, I would say a lot of the values of kind of different cultures that my, although I don't speak the language, although and when I go to religious events, and um, I feel, I feel connected to the religion and the culture through the values my parents impart. Less so, kind of the messages that they're saying to me, but or the connection to community is more about the values that my parents impart to me and the lessons they teach me, even if it's in English, right? So I think that's such an important part of culture where I feel like there's a lot of fear about if you don't speak the language that you're losing it, but it's more about in my mind, transforming it and connecting in a different way. Right. I think we all have to sort of figure out our own relationship to our heritage and our culture, because I think so often, especially in pop culture, like because for so long, there are so few representations of South Asians and Indians in popular culture. I remember personally, I mean, I love the movie Bend It Like Beckham, for example, when it came out. But everybody assumed that was my life because it was the only mm -hmm. thing they were seeing on film that was like, oh, Indian people. And, you know, marriage is so important. And it is. Trust me, marriage is very important in Indian culture. But everything that happened in that, in that movie, people just assumed, okay, that's your life. And it's not my life. For one thing, I'm South Indian, which is very different from being North Indian. And so one of the things I really want to portray in this novel is that Indians and being an Indian person or being an Indian American person, we're not a monolith. We all have different experiences. And the way we grow up and the way we were raised very much impacts who we are. And so that was one of my goals with this novel, too, because so often I think there are certain ex expectations of what a South Asian novel is supposed to be like in terms of um, cultural conflict, um, an emphasis on marriage and arranged marriages, you know, the quote unquote meddling aunties. They're all viable. And they're all fun. I love them all. But I just kind of wanted to do something different and kind of explore another way to tell a story about being Indian American in this country and how how important it is to my character and how it shapes her. That's very different from kind of the other storytelling I saw. Yeah, because you know it's such an important part of the stories. And and we we talk about we've talked a little bit about representation on the show, but we haven't dived as deep as we would like to. But representation in the writers' rooms in the creation process is so important because it allows you to tell more authentic stories. And like you said, we're not monolith. Like we are just so many different kinds of Indian people, so many different kinds, whether it's the immigrant, the person uh, move here at an older age, growing here, so many different types of that immigrant story. And um, South Asian representation is also this like such a crucial thing. And we've come a long way since approved from the Simpsons, but um, um, it, it, representation is so important because it allows us to tell more complex and compelling stories instead of their flat kind of Indian best friend. 
so I think that was really interesting about the book where it's like, it's not a story that to a non-Indian person would be unrelatable. Like it's, it's still a really extremely great book, but as an Indian person, I saw those connections. Like uh, Kevin, and I talked about how he read this book and he recommended it to me. Yeah. I totally. <laughs> yeah. Non-Indian uh, exhibit A. But yeah, I mean, even as, you know, someone not from Indian descent, there are a lot of cultural elements in this book that I found really, you know, relatable or, or, or really resonated with me, particularly with, you know, the meaning of, of names and the idea of close family ties. I am Chinese. I'm from China, born and raised. Um, I will not be able to, you know, fully appreciate the Indian cultural element in this book, but naming is a very important part in the Chinese family culture as well. And I have been close with my grandparents too. So those are the parts of the book that really touched me. And these are, I think, really some cultural elements that are universally critical. Um, and I would definitely recommend this book to anybody. It's it's that interesting thing we've been talking about this whole time, even with like audiobooks and music, we've kind of danced around this idea that different people read stories differently, right? And find different truths. And the most important part uh, and love to get your thoughts on this is telling essential truths. Like legacy applies to everyone, but the South Asian aspect will hit me a little different than it'll hit Kevin. But um, maybe the naming aspect hits Kevin a little bit differently because he doesn't go by his birth name in America, right? So, and it's so interesting because it's kind of these intersections with Fitchin's story about writing a relatable story and writing a popular story is about finding those hidden humanity truths to tie us all together. Yeah, 100%. Um, that's what we turn to fiction for. I think you're right. I think that's a really good point you make that we turn to a, a certain novel because we were looking for specific things. And there are some aspects of the novel that might be more resonant for one person than the other. But as long as what brings it all together and hopefully makes it a compelling experience for everyone is that essential truth of the character. And more importantly, the evolution of a character. The, the reason we read stories is that we want to see the character achieve or learn some essential truth about themselves and the worlds around them. And ultimately, hopefully, even my character, even though my character is um, Indian American woman, and she's a billionaire, by the way, that's not very relatable at all. Um, but even though she's a lot of things that we might not personally relate to, hopefully, this journey she goes on in terms of figuring out her relationship with her past, figuring out her relationship with her children, and figuring out how she's going to make, um, you know, come to terms with the idea that she's actually dying and what that means for her. And how, like, I think one of the lines in I say is like, she has to figure out how you say goodbye to life itself. You know, and I think those are all things that we can all relate to, no matter what our backgrounds are. And that's what we search for in novels, is trying to kind of figure out things in our own life by seeing how other characters kind of deal with them in their stories. To close out uh, every one of our episodes, we have this segment called Suspenders. It works like this. Uh, we ask you a fun random question that's unrelated to anything whatsoever, and you can give us any fun random answer you feel like. So, question of the day is, what TV channel doesn't exist, but really should? Wow, that is such an interesting question. You know, for me, sometimes what I do, and maybe this is a little embarrassing to admit, you can go down these YouTube rabbit holes where you can find programming from 
the 80s or the 90s and just be like chock block of programming including the commercials so you could, it's kind of a really good way to like you could time travel back to a certain era so maybe like a good channel that would just specialize in programming from previous years or you can kind of be, remember what it was like to live in like 1984 for example and be immersed in all the news and pop culture from that time um i think that might be kind of fun and interesting and i don't think that's on the air completely i love that idea with the old commercials and everything I know um, I'm a big comic book person, so when they release old reprintings with the actual old ads, it's just so interesting. And it's it's such a weird framing thing and storytelling thing in itself, where it's like, it pulls you right back. Cause like if I'm reading a really old comic book and then in the middle, it's like an ad for Netflix, it pulls you out of it. So I think that's a really cool idea. Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the key learnings we got from this week's expert storyteller. And this week we had the amazing Kirfana Remesetti. What was great about uh, Kirfana is she wrote this amazing book called Davashraxi's Last Day. And it's a book Kevin and I both read cover to cover, absolutely loved. So although we only had a short amount of time with her, we were so excited to dive deep into her storytelling style and this just expertly written book. And you know, one of the really cool things we got to talk about in our first learning for this week's Top Hat is the idea and importance of fiction. You know, fiction plays such a key role in our lives. And you know, historically for me, that's been more through television and less through books. But I'm discovering the power of fictional books as well. And because it's beautiful. It, and it's one of the, it's such a key part of what we talk about on the show, the ability to create worlds, to create stories that tell essential truths. And um, what we loved about this is we got taught to her about the importance of fiction to teach us things, to help us go through things, to help us relate to people and go through experiences we will never actually experience. And this goes all the way back to our episode we did with Dr. Andrea Letamendi, where we talk about parasocial relationships and the power fiction has to make us more resilient people. So it, it was such a great conversation today because we really got to understand deeper about the power of fiction and how certain books make us better humans and can give us amazing ideas about the future. The different ways we experience fiction, television, audiobooks, uh, the physical text, or the different times in our lives, whether it was before a big breakup or when we were young or when adults, all give us different lenses to view a story. And when we read or experience stories in different ways or at different times, we actually experience them differently in a way that we kind of need at that time in our life. So it's such an interesting and important conversation we had today about the power of fiction. Yeah, and I think another interesting aspect to this fictional work is that it, it is rooted in Kirtana's reality as well, because uh, she used to be an entertainment uh, journalist. And we did get to talk about this very interesting and often unnoticed uh, form of storytelling that is uh, entertainment news story, or more specifically, stories about the deaths of celebrities and their obituaries because you know this is where we get a quick summary of uh, a certain celebrity's life and learn about their impact in a very quick way and this type of storytelling carries a, a unique type of responsibility to it 
and this is pretty central uh, to this book as well. What impact are you going to leave uh, to this world? Uh, how are people going to remember you when you die? This is a type of story where the storyteller has a lot of impact in. Yeah, and you know it, it ties right back to a conversation we had with Eric Toda, who uh, was an early hire at Facebook and uh, ran social marketing for them um, about the this idea of essential truths and how all great storytellers, all great stories, whether it's in the boardroom, whether it's in a sales pitch, whether it's in an amazing fictional book, tells essential truths that can touch someone and impact someone in a huge way because it, it finds that emotional resonance. And this has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show whenever you get your podcast. Leave us a comment and review to tell us what you're thinking. Follow us on Instagram at LSPDPod and on LinkedIn, Linen Suit and Plastic Tie. And thank you again for listening. Uh, I hope you're doing well. You're doing amazing. And you are one step closer to becoming a better storyteller. Have a good one.